Well, this morning, as you know, we are kicking off our Advent series, which will run through Christmas Day, which happens to be on Sunday this year. And as we go through this Advent series, we're going to be spending our time looking at pictures of Christ from the Old Testament. And we find ourselves this morning kicking this off in the book of Isaiah. Specifically, we are going to be looking at chapters 11 and 12 of Isaiah, if you would turn there this morning. Well, I have a rule with myself that as much as possible... If there is a movie that is based on a book, I will read the book before I watch the movie. I know I'm strange that way. I know there are others out there like me, and I applaud that, but I know that not everybody is that way, and that's okay. Now, I'm not 100% on this, but I, I try to do my best. I like to get the story the way the author originally wanted it to be told before I see someone's interpretation of it. And one of the things that is amazing about modern technology that is used currently in the entertainment industry is that they can now take whatever is in their imagination and they can bring it to life, right? Stories that would have been impossible to tell well in the past are told and look so good you would think it was real. Whether we're talking about superheroes or monsters or villains or outer space, science fiction, fantasy, they come to life like they never have before, and I like to see if what I envisioned in my mind as I'm reading the story is how, it, is how it appears to me on the screen. Well, back in the times of Isaiah, obviously they didn't have movies, they didn't have television shows. And so when God chose to communicate with his people, he used words. And oftentimes he would paint a picture with words that people could easily understand. They could easily relate to, they could easily envision in their minds. He would create these vivid pictures these, that would clearly communicate something, an image that would stick with them. A picture that they could hold on to and they could remember and they could turn back to in order to be reminded of God's truth. A picture as vivid as any that may appear on the screen. And that's what we have here this morning. And that is what we are going to begin to do as we walk through this Advent series. This year we're going to paint a picture that God gives us from the Old Testament. And what we're going to endeavor to do is to bring what is on the pages of Scripture and create a picture of our Savior. And each week we'll bring the picture into greater focus from a different perspective fleshing it out, bringing in more beautiful details as we work our way towards Christmas Day. Well, as we come into the text this morning, into chapter 11 of the book of Isaiah, we want to be able to fully understand what is being communicated in this text. But in order for us to do that, we're going to have to do some work here on the front end to place it within the right context. There's a historical context that is going on in the background in Isaiah 11 and 12, as well as a prophetic context in the, in the prophecy and the, and the unfolding of God's redemptive history and plan. So we're going to start off looking at the historical context. Well, the ministry of Isaiah the prophet spanned from around 742 to 700 B.C., 
Isaiah's ministry was to the southern kingdom of Judah, and it spanned over the reign of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And chapter 11 falls during the reign of King Ahaz. Now to be clear, this is not the King Ahaz that we're probably most familiar with who was married to the infamous woman Jezebel. That King Ahaz was a king in the northern kingdom of Israel. This is a different King Ahaz, same name. This is a different King Ahaz, and he reigned in Judah. And although Ahaz had good role models in his grandfather and his father as how to be a king that honors God, a king that follows after God, Ahaz did not choose to do that. He abandoned the way of his fathers and instead was a wicked king. And the narrative of his reign is found in two places. We have a second, well, it's found in, within the pages of Isaiah. We get little hints and pictures of it. But it's also found in 2 Kings chapter 16, as well as 2 Chronicles chapter 28. And we learn from these narratives that instead of worshiping God, he chose to worship false gods. He chose to worship the gods of the surrounding nations. He worshiped Baal, and he even sacrificed his own children to Molech. He was a wicked king. And during his reign, the kings of Syria and Israel rose up together to to wage war against Judah. And and Isaiah in chapter 7 lays this out for us. In the very first verse of chapter 7, Isaiah says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Well, from the other historical accounts, we learn that although these two kings were not able to take Jerusalem, they did attack Judah. They were able to attack some other cities in Judah. They even took some of them captive. And during that time, God sends Isaiah to King Ahaz to tell him, to give him a message from God, to tell him not to fear these two kings, but to trust in God. Isaiah tells him, trust in God, for God was going to bring their rule to an end. God was going to take care of his people, Judah. So in that moment, King Ahaz was confronted with a choice. Was he going to trust God, or was he going to put his trust in someone else? Well, instead of trusting God, what King Ahaz did is he reached out to a third king for help. He actually reaches out to the king of Assyria and asks him, please help me against these kings that are attacking me. And the king of Assyria says, sure, and he comes and he helps. He kills the other two kings, ultimately resulting in the conquering of the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. And at this point, King Ahaz is paying tribute to the king of Assyria. So so King Ahaz then, when confronted with this decision to trust God or trust man, he chooses to put his trust in man. He doesn't listen to God's prophet Isaiah, but instead took matters into his own hands and aligned himself with the enemy of God. That's the historical context behind these chapters. However, there is also a context that is prophetic within the book of Isaiah itself. The book contains many prophecies declaring judgment. God made it clear that he was going to judge both Israel and Judah for their idolatry. God made it clear that he was going to use the nations of Assyria and Babylon to execute his judgment for their sins. 
But as you read through the book of Isaiah, Isaiah begins to paint this picture in the midst of judgment. Against this background of judgment, God inserts a promise of redemption, a promise of restoration. A picture of this promised restoration. He slowly paints this picture for us as he works his way through this book. And we can see some of these brush strokes. I want us to see this as we're building up to our passage in Isaiah chapter 11. I want us to see some of these brush strokes that God is painting in this book. And it starts in chapter 4, and these passages will be familiar to most, if not all of us. And in the midst of judgment, God says, through Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, he says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. So we get this little picture. Isaiah introduces this branch of the Lord. We don't get any any details about this branch at this point, except for that it's going to be involved in some restoration of the people. And we get this sense of what God is going to do in the middle of promised judgment. Then in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, God makes a promise to Ahaz. Isaiah goes to King Ahaz and he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. He said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. God gives the promise of a child born of a virgin who would, call, who would be called Emmanuel or, or God is with us. So we have this branch of the Lord and we have this promise of a child that is born of a virgin. And God adds to this picture again in chapter 9. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, he says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we get a little bit more picture, another brushstroke that God paints. The son born of a virgin would not only be Emmanuel, but he would also rule and reign in the throne of David. This is a son who gets, we get these hints of divinity in the titles that are given to him of wonderful counselor and mighty God and everlasting father and prince of peace. Those are the parts of this picture, the the special effects that God has used so far in in order to slowly reveal this person, this, this son that he is promising will come. And I think it's important for us to put ourselves in the place of those who would have received these prophecies at this time. Imagine for a moment that you are an inhabitant of the land of Judah during the reign of King Ahaz. And you're not just an inhabitant of the land, you're actually a true worshiper and follower of God. You worship the true God and yet you have a wicked king that promotes the worship of false gods. And your nation is under attack. It's under attack by Israel and Syria 
And you're living during this time, and it seems hopeless. You know what God has promised in the past through the line of King David, yet the descendant of David that you see right in front of you is wicked. It's a king that does not love God, a king that does not rule justly, that does not take care of his people. And you are wondering, is there any hope? Is God really going to do what he said he would do? And you hear these prophecies of Isaiah, and, you, and, and the majority of them are judgment. God is going to bring judgment against Israel, judgment against Judah for their idolatry. And you're wondering, is God going to do what he promises? Is he really going to bring this promised king? And in that context, you get these glimpses, these small pieces of God's promises. God says there will be a branch of the Lord. God says there will be a virgin conception in the birth of a son. God says that this son would rule and reign on the throne of David. God says that even though he is bringing judgment upon Israel and Judah, he will bring back a remnant. He will keep a people for himself, and he will restore them. However, at this point in Isaiah, you should be asking yourself the same question they would have been asking. They would have been asking this question, who is this king? And what will this king be like? And what will his rule be like? Who is this? And Isaiah answers those questions for us. Gives us another piece, another brush stroke of the picture this morning in Isaiah 11 and 12. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 11 and, and let's start, start getting more details to this picture that God is painting. Isaiah 11, we're going to read the first two verses. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Well, Isaiah paints a vivid picture here for us in these first two verses, and it is a picture of a stump. And he refers to it here as the stump of Jesse. So the first question, I don't know about you, but the first question that I asked when I read this is, why a stump? Why, why would God use this picture of a stump here? What, and I don't know about you, but I would ask you, what picture comes to your mind when you think of a stump? Well, years ago when I moved into my house, after a few years of living elsewhere, I noticed that there was a tree growing right next to the side of the house that wasn't there before, right up against the foundation. It was probably about three or four inches in diameter. And as you can imagine, I did not like the idea of a tree with its roots potentially growing into my foundation. So I did what any good homeowner would do, and I cut it down. I cut it down. And then I drilled holes into the stump that remained, and I poured stuff in there to try to make sure that it would kill the roots. And when I think of a stump, I think of a tree that's been cut down and by all appearances is dead. A stump that seems the vitality is gone. And that is the imagery that Isaiah is trying to capture here. And what is this stump? He, he calls us the stump of Jesse. 
This is the lineage of Jesse, Jesse, David's father, King David. And like we talked about, at that time, if you had looked at the line of David, you, have not, you would have not seen a tree that was abundant and flourishing. You would have seen a stump. The majority of the kings, as you read through Kings, and as you read through Chronicles, and as you read the narrative of the history of Israel, as it approaches ever more towards judgment, in captivity, in exile, is you see wicked kings. And in Isaiah 11, they're living under King Ahaz, who we've already described his wickedness. God had already promised judgment against them. You would have seen a stump. This is the same imagery that God uses. When, when, I, when God calls Isaiah to be a prophet, and we see that in Isaiah chapter 6. We, we see the same picture of judgment and of death and of, of appearing death, and it's found in chapter 6. So Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, God is telling Isaiah what he needs to say, what message does he need to communicate, and this is it. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull, and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I, Isaiah, said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. A stump. However, Isaiah doesn't leave it there. The stump may appear dead, but God promises that what you can't see when you're looking at this stump is the vibrant root system in the ground. There is a secret vitality here that is not visible immediately to the eye. And the evidence of this vitality is the promise of a shoot or a branch that comes from the root of the stump. And not only will there be a branch that comes out of this stump, but he says that that branch will bear fruit. When I had my house built years ago, the, uh, the builders planted two trees pretty much in everybody's yard. They planted, at least in mine, they planted a tree in the middle of the front yard and one right next to the mailbox. And years ago, randomly in the middle of a windy day, <clears throat> I was inside and we heard this loud crack. From outside. I, I, didn't have any, I didn't have any idea what it was. I didn't think much of it. Next day, I walk outside and I look and uh, the tree next to the mailbox was just broken in half. Half of it was laying on the ground. The wind had just snapped it in half. It was, to me, I never had that happen before. It was the strangest thing. I didn't know what to do with this half tree stump thing that was next to my mailbox. Do I leave it alone? Do I rip it out? Well, over the years, uh, I've left it in the ground. And what I have noticed and observed over the years is new branches have grown out of it. I didn't think that was going to happen. I, I looked at it, you would have thought it was dead. I thought it was completely going to die and that I was going to have to pull it out. Yet, it had a secret vitality that I did not know about. 
And there was evidence of life because of the branches that came out of the stump. And that is what Isaiah is picturing here. And this secret vitality is from the source of God's promises. Years ago, it's actually from the line of David. That's why this is the stump of Jesse. This branch of the Lord that he introduced in chapter 4 is from the stump of Jesse. It is a person, an individual from the line of David. This is the son born of a virgin in chapter 7. This is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace of chapter 9 who would rule and reign on the throne of David. And the fact that this son is from the line of David clearly pictured with this branch from the stump of Jesse. So this son from the line of David gives this son the right to rule and reign because he comes from the line of kings. This is no illegitimate son. This is the promise of a rightful king. But what would be the character of this king? What, what would this king be like? So far, the line of Judah had not produced such a person. At that time, like we said, they had Ahaz before them. Would this promised king just be another one like those they'd already had? Well, Isaiah immediately makes it clear that this king would be different. And he makes that clear Uh, In verse 3, so I want to actually read verses 3 through 5 of Isaiah chapter 11. It says, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And even before that in chapter two or in verse two, right away he says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This branch of the Lord would not be a mere man. This is this distinguishing characteristic that separates him from the other descendants of David. The Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him. This is the picture of the Spirit of God coming and staying, sitting unmoved upon this person. This must be the distinguishing characteristic, because unless this man is under the Spirit of God, his rule will be no different than the kings that have come before him. But what will it look like for him to have the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him? Well, he fruits that out in the rest of verse 2. He says this king would have wisdom and understanding. Understanding is the collection of information that you have, but wisdom is the ability to apply it. To ability to apply the right information at the right time in the right situation. This king would also have counsel and might. He he would have the ability to gather information for decision making and the forcefulness to make the decision. And even though this king is able to gather the right information and he has the force of will to apply it at the right time, what will his motivation be? Will he be out for himself or will he be out for others? Well, this king will be motivated by the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a profound respect for God's authority and a loving reverence for his character. This this king, unlike the kings before him, this king will be able to perceive things correctly 
and be able to carry out correct decisions because of a correct motivation. This is quite a description that Isaiah has laid out for us this morning. In the middle of judgment, in the middle of promised judgment against them for their idolatry, God promises a king of the line of David who has the spirit of the Lord resting upon him. A king who perceives things correctly and he carries out right decisions always at the right time with the right amount of force and the right motivation. This is an amazing king that is being promised. It is the exact opposite of the kings that they had ruling up to that point. Well, if God would send this promised king, and this is the character of that king, what would his kingdom be like? In other words, how will he rule and reign? And we read the first part of that as we read verses 3 through 5. Verse 3 is actually, if you look at verse 3, it's quite an amazing description of this king, if we think about it. Notice what it says. It actually says that this king, who delights in the fear of the Lord, will not judge by what he sees or hears. Now, how is that possible? I don't know about you, but every human judge that we experience in this life can only make decisions based upon what they see and what they hear. They have nothing else to go off of. They have no other evidence by which to make judgments. That is how our whole judicial system is supposed to be based. It's supposed to be based upon evidence, upon facts, that which is seen, that which is heard that which can be presented to show either innocence or guilt yet this says that this king that is not going to be the basis for his judgments so what does this mean what this means is that this king will judge based upon what mere man cannot see and what can't a human judge see they can't see the heart They can't see what is going on inside of a person. This is a king who knows everything, seen and unseen. What the Jews at that time needed and what we need is a king who will rule with absolute justice. And absolute justice is only possible with absolute knowledge. So what he's saying here is that this king will have absolute knowledge. He will know all things, all things that are seen, all things that are unseen, and he will make his judgments based upon the absolute knowledge that he has. And what will those judgments be like? Well, this king will judge with righteousness. That means he will do, always do what is right. He will look after the weak and vulnerable of society. He will bring justice to those who are oftentimes overlooked, the poor and the meek of the earth. And one thing that is clear as you read through the Bible is that God cares for the weak and the vulnerable of society. He calls us to do the same. James even writes in James chapter 1, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So this king, how does he rule? His rule is just, and his rule is equitable. But how will we be towards all those that deserve punishment? In what way will he execute justice towards the wicked? 
Well, as it says, the wicked of the earth shall sin under the, sit under the wrath of his justice. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and he will bring death to the wicked. This king will execute absolute justice, vindication to the poor and meek of the earth, and wrath towards evildoers. And he will do this perfectly because he knows all things, all things seen, all things unseen, and he will do it consistently because as verse 5 states, right? verse 5 says righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. What does that mean? Well, that means that part of his essential nature is righteousness and faithfulness. He not only knows the right things to do, but he's also faithful to do them every single time. The promised king will bring a promised kingdom that will be ruled with justice and equity. But not only will the promised kingdom of the king <clears throat> be characterized by justice and equity, we also see, and we're going to read verses 6 through 9, that there's, going to, there's safety and there's security that characterizes this kingdom as well. And as we read verses 6 through 9, it says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As you read that, right, you get this sense. You should have this picture conjured in your mind of safety and security. And it's actually shocking, right? A shocking level of safety and security. And it's shocking to us because it's so contrary to the world that we currently live in. It is so contrary to how nature in its fallen condition operates. It's, it's a picture of, of, of what it, it must have been like at the beginning of creation before the introduction of sin. And he creates this picture in our minds through the use of animals and the use of children. We know in the animal kingdom, right, there are predators and there are prey. And those two groups normally don't spend time together unless the predators are trying to eat their prey. We know that's a result of the curse against nature itself. Here, however, this promised kingdom of the king pictures wolves and lambs, leopards and young goats, calves and lions and fatted calves all lying down together. One is not hunting the other. They are together, and not only are they together, but they're actually being led by a child. They are so tame and so domesticated that even a child can lead these animals. And he continues this picture as, as you see it going on for generations. Not only will the bear and the cow graze, but their children the children, the offspring of these animals will also lie down together. This isn't just a temporary thing. This isn't just a temporary kingdom for one generation, then it's gone. But this is a condition that is going to endure when the promised king comes and he brings the promised kingdom. 
This is a condition that will persist in a creation that is safe and secure. Even the relationship between animals and people change. They're no longer enemies of each other. Even a child can play with a cobra snake without fear of anything happening. And our natural reaction, we read that, should be one of, I don't know about you, but my children would be one of, right? A child and a poisonous snake. Yet, yet, that is going to be what this kingdom, what the promised king's kingdom is like. And all of this is a result of the earth being filled with the knowledge of God. What an amazing picture Isaiah is painting for us this morning. He's painting this picture of a king who is unlike any other king that anybody has ever experienced. A king that will be motivated out of love for God. One who knows what to do in every situation will have the power to do it. One who will bring about a kingdom where he will rule with justice and equity, providing a safe and secure kingdom. And this promised king of the line of Jesse will usher in this promised kingdom. But what about the people of this kingdom? God had promised that he would bring judgment on his own people for their sin, that they would be taken captive, that they would be taking prisoners from their land for decades, that they would be scattered all over the known world. What was God going to do with his people? And we see that in Isaiah 11:10 through 16. So let's start with verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In the day that the king establishes his kingdom, God will use a signal for the peoples. Now this word signal means a standard, or for us, a flag. This is a standard that God raises in order to call his people home. It is a a rallying point calling all of his own who have been spread all throughout the world back to himself. On a rainy day in September, September 13, 1814, British warships sent a downpour of shells and rockets on Fort McHenry in Baltimore Harbor, relentlessly pounding the American fort for 25 hours. Now, the bombardment, known as the Battle of Baltimore, came only weeks after the British had attacked Washington, D.C., They burned the Capitol, the Treasury, and the President's House, all part of the ongoing War of 1812. And a week earlier, Francis Scott Key, a 35-year-old American lawyer, had boarded the flagship of the British fleet on the Chesapeake Bay in hopes of persuading the British to release a friend who had recently been arrested. Key's tactics were successful, but because he and his companion had gained knowledge of the impending attack on Baltimore, the British did not let them go. They allowed the Americans to return to their own vessel, vessel but continued guarding them. And under their scrutiny, he, he watched on September 13th as the barrage of Fort McHenry began eight miles away. It seemed as though Mother Earth had opened and was vomiting shot and shell in a sheet of fire and brimstone, he wrote later. But when darkness arrived, he, he saw only red erupting in the night sky. 
And given the scale of the attack, he was certain. He was certain that the British would win. The hours passed slowly, but in the clearing smoke of the dawn's early light on September 14th, he saw the American flag, not the British Union Jack flying over the fort, announcing an American victory. This is the moment that inspired Francis Scott Key to write what would become our national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. It's the moment where in the middle of seeming defeat, just the picture, you can see the picture in your minds of the flag still standing, waving in the wind, brings hope. You can imagine the soldiers in the fort that day as they're being barraged by enemy explosions, seeing the flag still flying. The flag is a rallying point. It's, it's an identification with a people. It is meant to draw us together as a nation. And that is the idea that is being communicated here. God promised judgment against his people. They were to be dispersed throughout the world for their sin. How could God possibly keep his promises to his people? God would send his king who would establish his kingdom, raising his standard that would call all his people home, that would raise his standard, rallying his people to himself. And what is the standard that God would raise? What is the flag that God would raise to call his people home? Well, he makes it clear in verse 10. He says, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people's. So the root of Jesse, the, the promised king, is himself the standard. The king is the one to whom all will look to and come. He is the one who will call all to himself. And as he is raised, we'll see the result of that in verses 11 through 16. So I'm going to read verses 11 through 16 to see what the result is of God raising this standard of the promised king. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathras, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. As, as the standard of the king is raised, he will draw the remnant from all over the world. This is, this is a picture of full restoration. If you read verses 11 through 16, you get this picture in your mind of a complete and total restoration of God's people. 
The different places in verse 11 are meant to communicate all the different directions. Those are nations from all the directions. It's figurative from the north and the south and the east and the west. He's communicating that there is nowhere in the world that a remnant lives and he won't be called back to himself in that day. And so then he takes the figurative language in verse 11 and he makes it really clear in verse 12. He will assemble the banished of Israel from the four corners of the earth. The Israel and Judah, he will call his people back to himself from the entire world, from every corner of the earth. But not only will God call his people to himself, he will also give them victory over their enemies and prepare a way for all his people to come home. And to understand the scope of this, he uses imagery that every Jew would have immediately understood. Imagery from their history that you see God reference time and time again in the Old Testament. And in verse 16, he references the exodus from Egypt. And in that exodus, God delivered all his people from the midst of their enemies. He provided plunder for his people from the Egyptians. And he prepared, he literally made a straight way for them to go through the river. Their deliverance was total. It was complete. And this is the kind of deliverance Restoration and redemption that is promised here. It is one that is done by God for his people through his standard, who is the promised king. But who is this king? Who is this promised branch of the Lord who had come from the stump of Jesse? Who is this son? born of a virgin, who will usher in a kingdom where he will rule and reign with justice and equity, establishing a kingdom that is safe and secure from all enemies, drawing his people to himself from all over the world. Well, although throughout the rest of the book of Isaiah, he gives more pictures and more descriptions of this king, we never know, if you read through Isaiah by itself, you never know exactly who this individual is. We get a lot of pieces of the puzzle looking forward, but not the exact identity of this king. We have to wait until the New Testament for that. And Paul, Paul gives us that. He helps complete the picture for us in Romans. And he does so in Romans chapter 15. And in Romans chapter 15, he, he, he writes in verses 8 and the first part of verse 9, he says, For I tell you, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, the promises of God that are found throughout all the Old Testament. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So he sets us up that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. And then in verse 12, he actually quotes from Isaiah chapter 11. And he says in verse 12, and again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles find hope. Paul makes the connection for us clearly that the root of Jesse that the branch of the stump of Jesse, the branch of the Lord, is Jesus Christ. Jesus 
is the promised king of Isaiah chapter 11. Jesus is the son born of the Virgin Mary. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Jesus is the branch of the stump of Jesse, the promised king from the line of David in which the spirit of the Lord rests. He is the one who, although he did not establish his physical kingdom in his first coming, he did establish a spiritual kingdom in which he rules and reigns in the hearts of his children. Don't misunderstand me. To be clear, Jesus will return one day. And when he does, he will establish a physical kingdom here on earth. A physical kingdom in which he will completely fulfill all that is pictured in Isaiah chapter 11. We live in the already not yet of this promise. We live in the partial fulfillment of this prophecy with the longing and expectation for our king to return. For our king to come and establish his visible kingdom here on earth. For our our king to come and to rule this earth with justice and with equity. And to establish his kingdom where his children are safe and secure, who are rallied around his banner and his standard, the standard of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Well, how? How should we respond to this King? How should we respond to the branch of the Lord, this this root of Jesse, to the promised King? Well, helpfully, our response should look just like the response in Isaiah chapter 12. So in the midst of that promise, the promise of the king and the promise of his kingdom and the promise of the king's full restoration of his people, we come to Isaiah chapter 12 and we read, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So what should our response look like? Our response should be of one of praise and worship and gratitude toward our king. And the first response we see in these first two verses of chapter 12 is one of inner praise and thanks to God. Notice the immediate response, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Why? What is the basis for the thanksgiving and praise that would be offered to God? He says, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. But how is this possible? So far in Isaiah, God has given the promise of a king. Remember, we only have, like if we're reading through the book of Isaiah and we just have the book of Isaiah here up to this point, we have the promise of a king and this king who is the branch of the stump of Jesse the branch of the Lord, yet this king, as we have seen, is one who executes absolute justice. 
one who knows all that is seen and unseen, even the hearts of man, and, and acts based upon that knowledge. This is a king whose anger is based on a just cause and who will not set aside judgment against those who should be punished. So how is it that God's anger is turned away and instead of wrath, in that day they experience comfort? That question's actually not answered in Isaiah chapter 11. But remember, in this book, God is building the picture of this king as you read through this book And although God doesn't answer that question here, he does answer it in detail in chapters 40 through 55 of Isaiah. Later in Isaiah, we learn that this promised king is also the suffering servant who would stand in the place of his people, taking the wrath of God for sin upon himself. We learn that the sacrifice that is needed for sin is offered by the king himself. This promised king This branch of the Lord would offer up himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And in doing so, he takes the wrath of God upon himself, resulting in us not being the recipients of anger, but rather of comfort. Jesus, in his first coming, took the wrath of God for sin upon himself for you and for me, he is the promised king. Yet in his first coming, he didn't establish his physical kingdom. He established his spiritual kingdom by his own blood. He gave his own life for you and for me. He took our sin upon himself. And all he asks is that we confess our sin. We acknowledge our sinfulness before him. And we place our trust in him alone to save us. And if we do that, We will be brought into the family of the king. We will become children of the kingdom. And one day we'll be able to experience the full restoration of his kingdom here on earth. We receive comfort and not wrath. And if you are here this morning and you have not done this, I plead with you this morning. Confess your sins. Turn from them. Place your trust in Christ alone. Place your trust in the only one who can save you. The promised king who has stood in your place. Who has taken the wrath of God upon himself so that you could experience comfort and not wrath. For those of us who are children of the king this morning... It is because of this truth that we should respond with thanksgiving and praise. Our, our hearts should be so overwhelmed that with this reality that we should trust and not be afraid. What have we to fear? God is the only source of salvation. God is our strength and our song because he has saved us. I love that picture here of singing. There's a quote, John Oswald, in his commentary on Isaiah, he writes this. He says, song is the natural expression of the spirit which is free. And no spirit is so free as that one which has discovered that its destiny is not dependent upon its striving, but rather upon the infinite power of the Almighty. So what should our first response be? It should be one of inner praise and thanksgiving and worship to our King. However, this praise and thanksgiving to God for saving us should not stay internal. 
It starts there, even in chapter 12, it starts there, but it should build within us and come overflowing out of us. Notice in verse 12, or sorry, in chapter 12, verse 3, there's, there's a transition that takes place from the internal to the external. The praise and worship and thanksgiving starts on the inside as we are overwhelmed by our salvation in Jesus, but then it turns to calling others to praise and worship our King. It turns to calling others to give thanks to God, to call upon His name, and to proclaim what He has done to those around us. We should be so consumed by love for the promised King who has saved us and brought us into His kingdom through the sacrifice of Himself that we can't but help to tell those around us about him. So as we come to a close this morning, what are, what are some practical ways we can do this? This Christmas season. So I want to give you two things this morning, just two challenges in response, two practical things you can do this Christmas season to both praise and worship the promised king and to call others to praise him as well. One, do an Advent devotional during this Christmas season. Be intentional to focus your hearts on celebrating the coming of this promised king. Do this in your own devotionals. Do this as family devotions. Do be intentional this year to focus your heart on Christ during this Christmas season. If you need some suggestions on what to do, I'd be more than happy to give you some suggestions. That's one for inner, for personal worship and praise and thanks to God. But what about an outward response? I'm going to challenge everybody here to invite at least two families to the community candy cane hunt here at church. This is a practical outreach that we are doing within this body to intentionally love those around us with the love of Christ and share the hope of the message of the King with people who maybe have never heard it before, who have heard it over and over again. Yet this time God's going to use the gospel to save them. Just two families. Invite those in your neighborhoods, your communities, your workplaces, wherever God has you in the lives of those around you. The goal of this outreach is to communicate the love of Christ and to introduce them to the promised king. Jesus is the branch of the stump of Jesse. Jesus is the promised king who has come to make a way for us to be saved, to be part of his spiritual kingdom here on earth. He is the promised king who will return one day to establish his physical kingdom here on earth, a kingdom where he will rule and reign with absolute justice and equity, bringing salvation to his people and judgment against the wicked, a kingdom that will be safe, And secure for his people. A kingdom in which he as the standard will call his people to himself. And will fulfill all the promises of the Old Testament. We should respond with praise and gratitude to our great God and his king this Christmas season. Let us pray.